Welcome to the party, pals. I'm Phil Gawthorne, action movie screenwriter. And I'm Liam Billingham, movie podcaster. And together we host Die Hard on a Blank, a podcast from Sugar23 that explores the influence of Die Hard on action cinema. In each episode, we'll talk about one major action movie that was released after Die Hard. Now, some of these movies take place on a bus. On a boat. Or even a roadhouse. Uh, sure. The point is, these are action movies that couldn't exist without Die Hard, and its DNA is everywhere. Die Hard on a Blank is a celebration of action movies and a deep dive into the ways that Die Hard shaped the action genre. So if you're a casual fan or an action movie Die Hard. Ooh, very nice. Then Die Hard on a Blank is for you. Yes, you personally. Our first two episodes, which are all about the original 1988 masterpiece Die Hard, drop December 21st, because Die Hard is a Christmas movie, wherever you get your podcasts. Phil, do the line. Now we have a podcast. (laughs) Ho, ho, ho. Welcome to Romerecast, a podcast about Eric Romare, his films, his working methods, and anything else we want to talk about related to Eric Romare. I'm Liam Billingham. Wait, what? I thought you were Sean Sonavaratna. Oh, I was just going off the script. I should Damn have imp- I should have no. improvised a little bit more like, hey, like the movie we'll ask. be talking about today. Did you hit record? Are you rolling? I'm rolling. Let's okay. do a sing. Let's do a quick sing. Yeah. Three, two, two one. Okay, cool. Well, I'll cut that sync sound out, but I'll leave in the lead up so people are like, oh, they're going to do a sync sound, and then it won't be there anymore. But you know what's great? Our sync is also off, so maybe you should keep the sync in there, too, because it's kind of charming. <laughs> people are going to be like, how incompetent are these guys? <laughs> Welcome to the podcast. Sean, how are you? I'm doing very well. Um, I just took a lovely walk, was reading some Romare, reading some interviews, and uh, I can't Prepping stop emotionally. Prepping emotionally for um, what I think. And intellectually. And intellectually and uh, poetically. And um, this movie, I don't know, it's just, uh, I think I've found my favorite Romare film so far. And well, okay, I think, so second. Yeah. So that's, that's, it's actually not my favorite of the Romares we've, wa- we've talked about so far. So this is very exciting. It's my favorite of exciting. what we've watched so far. And it's my favorite of what I've seen of his work, period. So out of the... Wow. The, yeah, like this has become a new canon favorite movie of mine and i think if there had to be a movie i could show everyone in the world that i really think could make the world a better place this is the movie and i'm not saying that in any kind of bullshit way like all right 100% slow your roll there maverick by the <laughs> way the movie i would show everybody is top gun maverick um the film we're talking about today is the four adventures of renette and mirabelle we'll get there we before we jump into the movie which i'm very excited to discuss with you as always we should start with our we have a new segment i want we need jingle music for our new segment so i'm gonna say the name of the segment and then i want you to write theme music right now oh Just cool with your voice ready with my voice welcome yeah. to our new segment romare in the air romare in the air Wow, that was actually not bad. That was not bad. Romare in the I, I Air. I took is a, inspiration from the song. From the song in the movie, I thought so. Romare in the Air is a new segment where we talk about real life Romare connections we've made and to the podcast. This title was given to us by a uh, friend of the podcast, Austin Ratchless, who uh, is a pal of mine, and said, I think you guys should have called the show Romare in the Air. Um, which we're not gonna do, but we will call a special segment. In this That's segment, a really great, great title. Thank you. Thank you, Austin. Thank you, Thank us, you Austin. Maybe for coming up with it. Um, before we jump into that, though, what the point of this segment, all right, is to talk about real life encounters with Romare or people talking about Romare or whatever the case might be. I have two for this episode. Do you cool. have any, Sean? I have one. Okay, great. I'll do mine quickly. One is that our friend Tim Noble, who's a Twitter buddy and a human being that I sort of know in real life, started watching Eric Romare movies and tweeted at me with a photo, I believe from Claire's knee, being like, are you happy? And I was like, well, no, I'm never actually happy. But I am happy that you're um, watching uh, Romare films. The second and the more significant one is I was recently not at Disneyland, 
I want to be specific, but at a Disneyland hotel. That's much better. Much better. And the <laughs> I was wearing my Paulina Laplace hat made by Human Boy Worldwide. That's the I'm not most that fucking today. pretentious but amazing fucking a, thing to wear to a Disney uh, yeah, World. Disney, like Disney, you, that Disney was such a thing. that was an intentional choice, and you needed to make a statement that like I'm here for my kid. This is cool, but I like cinema. Well, in fairness, we did get to swim in a pool for like five hours, so like I'm down with that. I am not wearing my Paulina Laplace hat today. I am wearing my. We should get a screenshot of got this. A, my Irma Vep hat. Very cool Irma Vep hat. Very the, cool Irma Vep with hat. With the text I, treatment of the original. Of, of the, the original. And I, um, oh, let me get a quick picture of it as you drink your, is that an energy drink? No, it's a beer. Um, I but love it does this, have an energy drink sort of look to it. I love this picture because uh, I'm leaning forward with my hat and my ridiculous mustache <laughs> and you're like clutching a beer. It's like really good. It's really good content. So, uh. I was wearing my Paulina Laplace hat and the parking attendant who probably was 25 and wearing like a Disneyland vest was like looking at me as we were his, the car was getting, you know, parked the valet parking. He wasn't like, he was sort of managing that. And he was like, that's funny. I didn't know that like Eric Romare had his own line of merch. (laughs) And I was like, and I didn't, I was like, yeah, it's cool. And I, I was just very, very like, wow, this, this Disneyland parking attendant, uh, you were, you were meant for better things, my friend, <laughs> if you're an Eric Romare, no disrespect to people that like Disney world. I just, I was very moved or parking by the fact attendants. that, or yeah. parking there. Yeah. Hell, I mean, yeah. most of LA would fall apart without yeah. parking attendants. So kudos to him. I hope he, uh, he gets back to Eric Romare soon. It was very, very, it was very cool of him. What's your Romare in the air? My Romare in the air. Um, in a few weeks, I'm going to be doing a, a screening series at a local natural wine bar um, in the neighborhood in Ridgewood called Esther. And so after um, talking to the owner, um, talking to other people at the bar, and then I just, uh, the question came up, like, what kind of movies would you be interested in showing? And um, I talked about Michael Bay, like Michael Bay, or like, I mean, that could absolutely be in the screening series. I just you know? am trying to mention Michael Bay in every episode of this podcast. Oh, I think that's a li- little bit of balance. A little good. bit of balance. That's good for SEO, probably. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, who knows? We, I think we have to, yeah. we'd have to transcribe the podcast first <laughs> for that to happen. So, so I, what, what are you going to show? So, so I bring up Romare. Well, I'm never going to actually say the series is called Redacted. So we'll never know what movie is going to screen. There's going to be like little hints and descriptions, but anything identifiable is going to be blacked out. Part of this is for legal reasons. So this way it's not like we're promoting a screening. It's just like a free community thing. But, um, you know, not... This is a total tangent. I don't think stuff. you have to worry about the legal implications at all for such a small gathering. But we yeah, can talk about that later. A, yeah, I think yeah. you're fine. Anyway, um, that's cool. So, that's yeah. a cool pitch. And so one of the movies that, um, you know, I want to show, I would love to show like every single Romare movie. But um, I was just telling some of these folks about Romare and I was describing boyfriends and girlfriends. And they were both just so like, so this is playing at Metrograph right now? Okay, cool. I got to go. And uh, just a moment of like never having heard Romare. And then... In just telling them what one of the films is about, the moment of like, oh shit, this sounds adult, this sounds interesting, and like, I really want to see this. And so like, this, yeah, is, a, totally. this is an interaction of um, folks that just were intrigued by this concept of like, adult cinema that reflects life. So Sean, would you ever show, at your screening series, would you ever show The Four Adventures of Renette and Mirabelle? I would absolutely want to show The Four Adventures of Renette and Mirabelle. Um, which is the film we're talking about yep. today. Would you like to read the description or should I read the description? I read it last time, so I'd love to. I'd love your reading of the plot summary. Okay, I did get a, an acting degree, so let me just get emotionally prepped. Let me go watch the movie. I'll be back in an hour and 40 <laughs> minutes. All right, here we go. Shot quickly in and around Paris during a production break on Romare's La Réon Verte, this breezy, witty film traces the exploits of two young women, one an ethnology student from the city, the other an unsophisticated aspiring artist from the country. Renette and Mirabelle become instant friends upon meeting in the first of four vignettes that make up the film, and in their first two days together, they decide to become roommates in Paris. Throughout the three remaining stories, they encounter many of the inevitable characters of a modern city the impossible waiter, the metro station hustler, and the snooty gallery owner. A Metro Graph Pictures release. This summary is also from Metrograph. So thank you for writing that 
Uh, it's always hard to summarize a movie. This mm-hmm. one does a pretty good job. I don't think it hints at the depths of what we're about to talk about. Yeah. Should we uh, talk about who is the cast and crew of this yes. film? Would you like to read it? Should I? You, would, you read it. I just read yeah. the summary. All right, so, go for it. Plus, um, you can deal with the French pronunciation. Bye. Oh, lovely. Uh, so the movie was directed by Eric Romare. It was written by Eric Romare and Joel Mikel. Joel Mikel is the actor that plays Renette. Um, This is really interesting. So a lot of the idea for this movie comes from her as a person and situations that she's been in that ended up becoming some of the comic episodes that we see. Um, The cinematography is by Sophie Mantegneau. um, And the sound department um, rotated between three sound people. This movie was made with a crew of three people, all extraneous or what not what he perceived to be extraneous, but unnecessary for the streamlined approach that he wanted to go for was cut. So this movie was made with him, sound, camera, that's it. You might hear me ruffling around because I'm opening my Romare biography that I'm reading. And there is one name that I think needs to be brought up that is not in this outline, which is uh, Francois Etters Garay, who is a supervisor who housed the team for the shoot in the country. So Mm -hmm. there was this woman who, this person who sort of, helped facilitate the shooting yep. of the country scenes. But yeah. yes, largely a crew of like largely a crew of three people. It was yeah. uh and we there was an editor in music also. Do you want to yep. talk about those? Yep. It was edited by Maria Luisa Garcia, who would uh edit uh, has edited a number of his films and would continue to edit his and movies. And work with him very closely. And work with him very closely. The music is by Jean-Louis Valero, who's also worked on a lot of his movies and um uh, was part of the music for The Aviator's Wife as well. Um, and uh, the main other actor, it's starring uh, Joelle McKell as Renette and Jessica Ford as Mirabelle. And Fabrice Lucini as the art dealer. One of the one of the great yeah one of the great scenes uh, yeah lots of lots of really great bit characters for sure uh, and the Philip Laudenbach is the waiter and Marie Revere who played a prominent role in The Aviator's Wife uh, as the grifter um, briefly film came in 1987 it is the running time here says 102 minutes but I think it's closer to 100 minutes mm-hmm. um, it was distributed by Le Film de Lusange, who's like a very very famous French distribution company that's just distributed a lot of stuff maybe we can do a whole episode about them but yeah this film is the first production of the Eric Romare company which he created to give himself more autonomy and more control over the production of his films and yeah. it's in French. And it was produced in French. Fran- French? It was produced in France. Um, as will every single movie will, he's uh, ever made. That, yeah, that's got to be true. Uh, okay, little some interesting facts about the production that we can, we can just jump right into. Um, the film was based on stories told to Romare by jo- Joël Michel, who hounded him to meet, to hounded Romare and his assistant to meet him for a long time. He liked her and he found her stories extraordinary, so he decided to make the film. As a digression, there was consideration about making like more episodes, more scenes with these two women. Um, and that didn't happen for, I think, interpersonal reasons that we can get into. Oh, interesting. Among those is that Romare had to play replace Anne Lorraine Marie, who played a part in Aviator's Wife, because she could not get along with Joelle Michel, oh. who is who uh, who played Renette. Also, um, wait. Uh, just on that note, that's like an interesting alternate reality movie because. Um, for those of you that have seen The Aviator's Wife, um, uh, Anne Lorraine Moray has a very different vibe, very different personality from Jessica yes. Ford. And this movie would have been a completely different movie. Not saying that it wouldn't be wouldn't be good or anything. It'd be just totally different. Well, Jessica Ford's like pretty bewitching in this mm-hmm. movie in this way. And I think it'd be a very different movie. Um, the way that this is described is that it was made during a production break of Le Réon Vert, like a week off, which is not true. They shot it over six mm. weeks, over 10 months, mainly on weekends and during vacations. So Romare kind of like put the production of this together based on these actresses. Um, it was semi-improvised, semi-scripted. Uh, he actually quit production numerous times because of how frustrating he found Joel uh, Mikel. Wow. Jessica Ford also did not get along well with her. 
That... And I think there's something here to discuss about this because I have a, a lot of feelings about that's brunettes a, so that I want to get into. That's really interesting. So in the so what I'm reading is the um Eric Romare Interviews book, which has been an amazing resource edited by uh, Fiona uh, Fiona Handyside. And um in the book, uh in this interview, he's talking about um Joel McKellen like meeting her, and the, one of the first things she says to him is like this uh I organize my life according to principles, found her fascinating. Um and he found that yes, she quite she quite reminds him of himself in certain aspects of like uh the way they look at life. Um he feels closer to Raynette and in some of the sort of naivete that exists um which is uh which is interesting yeah and like i never would have gathered what you had said about the production you know and also great to know that like cumulatively it was a short amount of time but it i didn't hadn't realized how spread out this had been yeah i think they had to do it when they weren't shooting the other stuff and um it was kind of you know it's a really interesting way to shoot a movie we traditionally think Mm -hmm. of it as like you 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 batten down the hatches and do it in this period of time and only you know, certain films have suggested an alternative to that on any kind of mainstream level. I think the most obvious being Bo- uh, the most obvious being Boyhood, yeah. which was shot over a period of like ten years. Which weirdly, yeah. no, this, this is not me disrespecting the movie at all, but like, is a movie that people have kind of forgotten about. It's really, really interesting. I feel like no yeah. one talks about it anymore. Um, why don't you talk a little bit about the production crew? You mentioned this before. There were three people on set: himself, Sophie met to you, and three sound three sound people. Yeah, three no rota- lights. No lights. Three rotating sound people: um, Paul Berto, Pierre Camus, and Pascal Ribier. Um, yeah, this small crew coming from this idea of how much can you streamline production? You know, and is save it money possible? and save money. And ultimately, he's a producer of his own movies. And for the kinds of movies he's trying to make, it doesn't benefit the production and the storytelling to have the larger machinery. Even in talking about improvisation, he talks about how the more scripted something is, the more precise you need to be with your scheduling because there's continuity, there's all these other factors. But in episodic construction, episodic storytelling, with the kind of improvisation that he was interested in doing um, with this, being as natural and as like kind of impromptu having that space to be like you know what we're gonna film at a supermarket tomorrow and just be able to do it um to be able to film on the street it's like you couldn't do that with a bunch of assistants you couldn't do that with a with the mechanism industrial filmmaking requires Mm -hmm. a certain formula it's the idea that like the the means of production inform the 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 aesthetic of the movie Mm -hmm. right so uh one thing that this interesting about is that there's no ad which makes sense because they're, 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 they, they needed a way. There was no d- departments to communicate mm-hmm. between. And right. sometimes I feel having been on, never betting on a big set, but like only having been on small sets, but even on small sets, you always feel like there's this like oh, 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 stress to get through things. I might edit right. that sound out, but it's always very <laughs> stressful. Yeah. Uh, and this sounds like it's, it's the alleviation of stress and just letting, yeah. letting the thing happen. No assistance, no script supervisor, which I think can get in the way. And he doesn't seem, too worried about continuity errors and an over focus on and continuity. Then, and he also like, says that he's um just because I haven't used one, and he also makes certain in the interview not to disparage them. He's like, I'm not disparaging script supervisors or any of these positions, but for the movies that I'm trying to make, it's not quite necessary. You know, I haven't really had continuity editors. I've had, you know, some folks, but they weren't professional by any means on some of the earlier films like the Moral Tales. But um he says it hasn't led to any continuity errors in not using them. He just keeps such close sort of track of everything and it's moving at such a mellow pace that if that's the way you're working, it is possible. You know, I had a film school professor who once said that uh, uh, a director's job was they're the ones doing the film. Everyone else on set is doing doing their jobs, but the Mm -hmm. film director is doing the movie. Yeah, which I think wow. is a really great That's way to great des- actually great way Antonio Tibaldi, a uh, great way to describe it. And I think the elimination of some of these roles also means that everyone is doing the film. 
as opposed yeah. to doing their jobs. You know, again, right. the lack of industrialization might mean you can find things and improvise things mm -hmm. and, and do those, make these kinds of changes. Speaking Everyone of is the, doing the film. That's fucking beautiful. It's great. It's great. Yeah. Everyone is doing the film. And, and you can it keep makes, that. Hey, Sean, you can keep that. <laughs> oh, that's buddy. that's beautiful. And it's also it's like it's that feeling of a student film. You know, like this sounds the which is way, the best like, feeling. Just yeah, wanting and, to make a movie to make it yeah, is the greatest. An established director essentially making a student film, but with the most sophisticated thought process, having been through so many different sort of years of right. making movies. And he called this film and La Vert, um his amateur films, like mm -hmm. movies that were kind of made. And, you know, I, we're, we're not approaching these movies chronologically, which at times I, I, I feel challenged by, if only because, and, you know, we've discussed this previously, I feel a little limited sometimes by my lack of knowledge about before. But if That's I can... okay. That allows you to just look at this on its own terms. Right, exactly. But if I can speculate, which is a fun thing to do, mm -hmm. I think the historical films he made before this were probably sort of the most gluttonous Romare kind of productions and the most, like, production oriented i mean anytime you're trying to do historical drama especially is that it, it becomes complicated by location and uh production design and all yeah. these elements that There's challenge costume, and it, sets production and it design. feels like a reset he he at this point in his career he wanted a reset and and to do an improvised kind of thing and honestly again this idea of a small film i find it very um i think it'd be very liberating to make a movie and not yeah. I sometimes we I don't know how you feel but sometimes it's like I think, Wong Kar Wai with Chunking Express you know he right. had just finished Ashes of Time which was this laborious production then made Chunking Express in three months from beginning to end um, probably very quickly, for very little and that's one of the most celebrated might, movies based on location based on right. access writing the night before in a very improvised way and you capture lightning in a bottle you capture freshness nothing is overwrought. Because you don't have time to be overwrought. There's and no time to do it. And yeah. thinking is the enemy of, of this yeah. kind of art making. Um, yes. Speaking of uh, not overthinking it, so I didn't know this until I read the book, but the film was improvised with, uh, based, you know, the film was written based on improvisations and situations with the actors using two techniques. One was called the pivot style and the other was the Pollock style. The pivot style meant that the actor spoke sort of like speechified monologue to some extent and was not interrupted. And at the end, the other actor, you know, responded the pivot style is more like one on top of each other you know just kind of talking to each other which lended a kind of naturalist and i you know there was no he used these two styles clearly to make this movie I, that's i mean that's a very important distinction for us to remember as as filmmakers if we are writing dialogue or we're thinking of the way two characters are interaction interacting essentially you have one or two of these. And if you think of human interactions, it kind of comes down to one or two of these, right? It's either the pivot style. Right now, I feel like we are speaking in the pivot style. But later on, when we get into personal philosophy and debating these characters and their viewpoints, we might get a little into the Pollock style, where we'll be interrupting each other and getting a little we bit should, more, a uh, little less precise. We should make that part of the show. Okay, pivot style. This topic, yeah. Pollock style. You see, we're making the show up as we go. Um, You know, I think we should jump ahead and talk about sort of each chapter of the show, but uh, of mm -hmm. the film, I should say. But one thing yes. that I think spoke to me, speaking to me about this style, and, and I haven't made a movie in a while, is that like I appreciate a filmmaker who bases creates a movie based on what he has instead of conjuring up a scenario, because so much of film production technique in the really everywhere in the world now is right. come up with a good idea and uh, and make a movie as opposed to like, Terrible well, what advice. do I have? I have these three, you know, and he's smart. He hires young people who like might not have families and large commitments and the challenges that like, you know, someone might have in their life to like go go off and make a movie for, you know, six months or whatever the case is. But he kind of uses the circumstances around him to make the movie and it results in these like really interesting and honestly we can have a conversation about this but i think some of the acting in romare films is some of the best acting i've ever seen in a movie but i don't judge it in terms of like emotion or whatever it's a it's the really true idea of what acting is supposed to be which is living yeah. truthfully under imaginary circumstances and every moment of this film with the exception of one, but I think it is intentional and we'll get into it, feels really lived in. Feels really, really lived in. Totally. Um, his acting is, I think, the standard for me in terms of totally. like what I... In my definition of what I find to be perfect acting 
it's what is found in Romare films. Um, and it's exactly what you said. You know, it's like truly living as these characters, like in this imaginary circumstance. It's what also makes every episode of this, um, as we're going to getting ready to talk about these episodes, feel a little bit like um, a sitcom. And this is something I we brought up in the last episode as well. Sitcoms. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. There's such a sitcom quality to it. It's um, it's beautiful. You said something on the phone the other day of like, you know, with a sitcom or with a show essentially is once you've set up the characters, you just see these characters that you know on adventures. And that's essentially what we get in this movie. I think in that case, what I was talking about specifically was actually what I finding HBO is doing in some of its series, which is um, once you get, you know, a season with, they do this with succession, which, you know, a mm -hmm. lot of people watch. And another, I think really underseen show called industry. They're in the second season of that show now. And uh, the second or third, ep the third episode of the season took, took place at a hunt, like where a bunch of rich people were going hunting um, and with all their, and, you know, and it was, there's a lot of you know political motivations to what's going on, and there's 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 bankers in that scene, there's investors, there's uh, a Tory. Uh, it's the show set in England, and there's all these sort of reasons for people to converge in this moment. And because we've gotten to know the characters, we can kind of watch mm -hmm. them exist in a scenario. And I I love that show. And the next episode seems to be doing the same thing, where all the characters kind of go on a trip somewhere cool. together. And yeah. Succession does that. Uh, I don't know if you watched that show, but in this third season. Well, I've seen episodes of it, and I think that's why Succession works for me as a show, is I don't feel, I hate shows where I feel like I need to watch every single episode. That's not the kind of TV I'm super interested in. So what, yeah. whenever, when my wife watches Succession, and so I'll see random episodes, and I could always jump in. Like, it's always enjoyable. I know enough about the characters, yeah. and you just get to watch what feels like a standalone. And there's, look, there, um, it's, a, it's a show story. about cyclical behavior. Like, not the characters change, but not that much, really. Like, they change mm -hmm. over seasons as opposed to in episodes, I would say. And so as a yeah. result, like, like my wife, for example, kind, did not watch the first season, half-watched the second half of the second season with me and then watch the entire third season, but like was not devoted, but knew enough. I felt like you could just jump into that show. And again, yeah. movies. And it's TV, a great way to watch TV. It is. And I think it, 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 it reveals things about shows that are really interesting. And we might talk a little bit more about this, but there's a big difference obviously between movies and TV. And I'm, I think we can talk about how we consume this, which I think is a great natural segue into talking very, very briefly. I don't think we have to, we've talked about how this, this film has four episodes. Let's define what those four episodes are. Presumably you've watched this movie. If you've listened to this far into the podcast, if you haven't, we'll give you a brief down TLDR <laughs> as the kids say about the four episodes. So the first episode is called the blue hour. Should I talk? You the, want to talk about it? Do you want to do it? Yeah, do I it. love. Um, so do just it. the the simplest. Uh, the blue hours are set up for this entire film. With this setup, what we're introduced to is um, a, a young woman named Mirabelle riding her bicycle in the countryside, and she gets a flat tire. Strangers on a train style. We cut to a young girl woman with a basket, Renette, walking down the road, and then the two meet. And then um, she helps her fix her tire. And then they start to become friends over this short episode. They eat some food uh, together. They meet a farmer who's clearly a real farmer. That's just a regular mm -hmm. guy talking and Romare's filming it. Yeah. Um, and it has, yeah. I'll, I'll want to come back to that a little uh, later. It has what I feel is the key line to this movie. And they, they decide to live together in Paris. And we cut to yeah. episode two, which is called The Waiter, yeah. where... Oh, and the um, just before we move to episode uh, two, the main um, situation in episode one is um, the witnessing of this um, meteoro meteorological moment in time um, of the blue hour. It's um, a moment at dawn when all the animals are asleep. The night animals have gone to sleep and it's before the uh, morning birds have started to sing their song. And it lasts for shorter than a minute. And it's something that Renette, being from the country, really wants to share with Mirabelle. Um, and the pursuing of this event is the main sort of dilemma in, uh, in this episode, but lots of other beautiful things that happen over. 
and and I think it's worth saying that it sort of sets up later some sort of character tensions when they miss Renette and Mirabelle miss the blue hour their first night because a car goes by and Renette becomes very upset by it. She's like, I just wanted this to be special. And Mirabelle's like, dude, chill. It's cool. These things happen. And I think that, like, upon retrospect, I haven't thought about it until this moment, that sort of sets up the kind of... If there is a, an inherent conflict between the two of them, it's their worldviews and philosophical ideas of, like, Renette is trying to capture every moment, whereas Mirabelle's a little more like, eh, Time, time yeah. is fleeting and moving, and and not not everything is as serious. Yeah, as all that. Renette, uh, Mirabelle sort of represents this a little more like um uh, popular sort of like um common sense, you know, um worldview. Yeah, you know? like kind of a city yeah. girl. Even though in yeah, real life a she's girl, a country yeah. girl, and Renette yeah. is the city girl, which is an interesting kind of oh look. yeah. Really? I mean, they were both That's sort of raised in the country, but Renette moved to uh, a, a community outside of Paris that she references mm-hmm. in the film as where her cousins live. Oh, I forget, where her I, I forget live, the name right. of it, unfortunately. Um, but they don't read that way at all. Um, but they are no. sort of the inverse, according to that's the interesting. But again, yeah, the way you look is part of the visual storytelling, and they both have very unique looks that just kind of like perfectly also help develop the character. Totally. Um, their their styling, their costuming, um, the way they smile, the way they react to each other. They're like they're not quite opposites, but um, I think there's a lot to learn over here of like having different philosophies on life and how you can still be in a relationship with someone, how you can should still be friends with somebody. Talk about that next, once we get these, through these descriptions, mm-hmm. because I think that yeah. that'll, that'll clarify. So the second episode is called The Waiter. And basically, mm-hmm. Renette is meeting Mirabelle at a cafe. She now lives in the big city. She lives in Paris. She Her classes end around 3 o'clock, and she goes to wait at a cafe. And uh, she only has a 200-franc note, and her coffee that she orders costs, costs $4. And unfortunately, she encounters the worst waiter in the fucking world uh who gives chides her and says she can't leave because he can't break her 200 uh pound 200 franc note i should say and, and everyone has been in uh in a situation like this that's fucking you know, awful. this is some so it version won't happen of this anymore this film is so analog in a way that like you wouldn't you just i mean you know it's like well it's just i never pay, i partially feel like i don't pay with cash that much anymore so it's like who cares yeah. but buying a coffee you know at like it yeah. won't happen in America. That's for sure. It will it, not happen in America. But, but the it, rest it, of the it world. it can still happen elsewhere. Yeah, that's yeah. very true. Yeah. Uh, Mirabelle shows up and she's like, fuck this guy. And they leave. And Renette goes back the next day to pay because she's a chump. Um, <laughs> the next well, chapter. What you would characterize as a Trump, she would characterize as a personal integrity. Uh, so, okay, cool, you know. bro. <laughs> we'll we'll uh, come back to that. The beggar, the kleptomaniac, <laughs> and the hustler is the third chapter. And this is when the, the, the philosophical differences between these two women really come into yeah. relief. Uh, yeah. Renette gives a, uh, uh, a person on the street some money. She then chides Mirabelle for not giving him money and says she sh- that people should give whenever they can. Um, it's a little bit of a philosophical difference that yeah. leads into a scene where Mirabelle... And what, and what I think is the best scene in the movie from a filmmaking perspective... Uh, you don't know. I didn't really understand what was happening until much, much later in the in the scene. Personally, but Mirabelle basically obfuscates a situation and stops a kleptomaniac from getting caught by some like shop detectives who are who are watching this woman who's clearly stealing some smoked salmon and some champagne and stuff like that. When Mirabelle brings that stuff home for Renette's birthday, Renette refuses to eat it when she finds out that it's been stolen. And this leads to a sort of like um, philosophical debate about how to help people, whether it's to be a mirror yeah. and, to sh- and to show them how to behave. Sorry, I'm sort of yeah. letting my feelings on this be known. Or like to help to... I don't know. I, or, or addressing the system, you know, addressing Mirabelle the system. is like Thank focusing you. like the system, uh, systemic issues that are, that are at play. Um, so this leads to a bit of an argument and they, like this chapter sort of ends with them not really fully in agreement, but I, Renette's clearly been affected by these last two yeah. incidences with the waiter and the, the, her, yeah. al, her altruistic, her arrogant 
altruistic perspective uh, being challenged that she decides That's she wants to leave it's, the city. It's oh, go ahead. both of those things. It's both of those things. It's arrogant and it's altruistic. And um, the and the conversations or certain arguments or uh, conflicts don't necessarily get resolved in at the end of a scene. And that's also just a, another example of what a great writer that um, Romare is, because he'll have these arguments and then the answer or the resolution kind of comes in the next scene or in a following scene and where you see how... And, and indirectly, how their actions now are affected and maybe changed. And they have different perspectives on what they had been arguing about based on the action in the next scene. Would you like to um, tell us about very, the fourth chapter, Selling the Painting? Uh, yes. So in uh, Selling the Painting... Um, Which is the fourth and final chapter of the, the film. The fourth and final chapter. And the shortest by a, by a shortest. significant amount. It's only like and, 17 minutes long. And the funniest. It is like And laugh the most scripted. Funny. And completely, completely scripted. scripted. You feel it. You feel it. Completely scripted. Um, and he made clear, uh, made it clear in the interview that every line of Fabrice Luciani, who plays the art dealer, is exactly what's written. And in the that's script. the so most you know that acted not... character. And that's what I wanted to come back to: is that that, for very distinct reasons, feels like one of the the sort of like I'm watching an actor give a performance. Now it's not oh, bad or it the still one... feels completely, oh completely natural, completely but it is natural. one of them. Maybe because it is scripted it feels as though that character is there to serve a function in a way which is very different from any of the other characters in this movie who we feel as though yeah. we are observing. He is, a, he is an antagonist in a film that does not have right. a classical antagonist. Right, and then that's um, a character like that needs to be written. Right? 100%. For the, for the specific Because if situation. we want to think again, like this, if, if, if some part, portion of this movie is vibes... If some of it mm -hmm. is just watching people live and watching them come into conflict to one another, uh, you need for the film to have a sense of real clear resolution, which I do believe that Romare wants, even though I, I think it addresses the relationship between Mirabelle and Renette, not the sort of conflict ideologically between them, not in direct terms, but that they are reunited at the end of the film in a bit of a classical human comedy, uh, yeah. as you like it, Shakespearean yeah. comedy way, where... The tensions are gone, but they're not necessarily resolved. It's like a reunion, a wedding, the way that Shakespeare will end a comedy. There's yeah. a little bit of that in there. That was a digression, the, but I think that that's part of it as well, a little bit. Oh, yeah. That's, I mean, that's that's the moment of finality. In a, mo in a movie that doesn't, that might feel like it doesn't have an ending, there is a moment that feels like finality. And it's exactly what you said of like, we see this divide and we get to see the reunion, but it's never, that's not the point of it. That's not what he's trying to show, but that is the, the ending. Yeah, hundred percent. And, and so it ends basically, uh, we should give the little plot synopsis there. Yes. Renette yeah, is running yeah. out of money. She needs money. There's interest in a painting of hers that she would like to sell but she has taken a vow of silence because, and this is very interesting, uh, they have, a, um, Renette and Mirabel have a discussion that like, you can't really talk about a painting. The second you talk about art, it kind of loses its, its, its meaning and that people talk about art too much, which <laughs> welcome to this podcast, but. And uh, welcome to the character of Renette, who in this film talks about, she rationalizes and talks through every single thought she has in her head and especially about her art. And it becomes this funny moment where she's talking about how you can't talk about art for five minutes. And then Mirabelle's just looking at her smiling and being like, you're doing it. And 100%. then that's when she says, as someone that lives by her principles says, I will not speak all day tomorrow. And then she gets a call back from the art dealer for a meeting to sell the painting. And it's tomorrow the day that she decides that she's not going to speak and she decides to continue and maintain the uh, the wager. And to, and to solve the problem, she brings Mirabelle. So when the, Mirabelle poses as a browser in the art gallery and Renette comes in and uh, the actor playing the art gallery owner, the art dealer, Fabrice Lucini, a Romare regular, who apparently did very, very funny impressions of Eric Romare. Um, uh, sort of to use a mansplains at her, condescends to her, tells her like he loves her art, but when she actually asks for money, he's kind of like, well, I, I can't sell this. And she asks for the money up front, but she's not talking. So he's sort of in a great Comedia del Arte kind of way, drawing <laughs> ideas from her and step walking all over her. And Mirabelle- But then also like showing respect and all, like it's, he's not just a villain. 
You know, there, there's no, a, but when it comes to the money, saying, it becomes the lowest common denominator, I think, to some extent. Right. He's like, I can give you 200 francs. And it's, you know, it's. Yeah. It's but also, moment. I think speaking from like a, the realistic perspective of a of a gallery owner. Right. Like in that world, like until it's Fair. sold. God, like, you're such a get, renette. Yeah. You're such a renette. Um, I know, man. Classic I know, renette. <laughs> I, um, I feel like a renette. You're a renette. Uh, but Mirabelle yeah. comes to her defense and he man- she manages to wrest $2,000 from the gallery owner. Renette and Mirabelle leave together. They're maybe, again, not the conflicts between them, perhaps not resolved, but certainly like reunited. But there is, and there's no conflict to resolve. We That's could have true. in those senses. There's a like, philosophical have, difference, but their friendship outweighs yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Friendship outweighs it, and I think that's a, that's a beautiful thing. We could be friends with people that we don't necessarily agree exactly on every single point. Sure. Yes. It feels harder and harder. So that's why this movie might be like a bit of a yeah. relief. Uh, the yeah. art gallery is left in his gallery with the painting sitting, Renette's painting sitting on a table. Two women are browsing. One picks up the painting. The last line in the movie is she asks him how much for this painting. And he says 4,000 francs. <laughs> After saying, I'm not sure I could even that sell was... it for 2,000, you know, maybe 1,500. Uh, once have he a... starts feeling the pressure of like having to pay her. And it doesn't feel particularly... Um, uh, optimistic about the state of art selling in 1987 which is when this film comes out you know it's, yeah. it's interesting to think of a Romare movie being made as recently as 1987 because to me he feels like a 60s and 70s filmmaker I mean his career lasted for so long so it is really interesting that this film is when I was five years old for example I just find that that right. is really really fascinating um you love this film I'm in love with this movie <gasps> I John, love you're it married. and I'm I am in love with it you're a big fan I uh, yeah, there are movies that you watch where I don't know, like I just have this like I don't know if you get this, but I literally feel this feeling as if like you're falling in love and I feel that movie with this movie. Where like I'm just like completely charmed by it in every single way. I think it's thematically beautiful. I think the whole idea behind it is amazing. I think the the characters are really really perfectly realized characters and kind of remind us like what great characters look like in movies and he talks about this in this interview of like strong personalities people where things happen to them and they make things happen and it's like wow if that's not the best definition of what a character is things happen to them and they make things happen sure yeah like are you the kind of person where like you know then is there action around you? Is there activity? Is life happening around you and are you a participant in it? And every single character of his and these two characters too like perfectly embody this idea and of another thing that he loves which is the ridiculous character he says he loves ridiculous characters and there's truth in what is ridiculous about all of us i liked uh, how'd you watch the film you saw it at metrograph i saw i saw it in the theaters um at metrograph and uh, it was an afternoon screening on a weekday and it was about half full and there was a family behind me with a teenage daughter and i thought that's really cool. That is cool. That's like that's like a really great thing. Yeah, yeah, bringing a kid to a movie like this is is very very cool. Um, I watched. I liked the film a lot. I liked it more the next morning. Um, I watched it at home after putting a child to bed with a Manhattan, mm-hmm. so I was a little sleepy. Um, but I I had a good experience with it. I, I I'm gonna be totally honest with you, uh, and I think this can lead into our for our conversation about. Uh, I'd, l- I'd like to talk about. Are philosophy, we switching to the Pollock style? But let's. Are we maintaining the pivot? Let's style? see where it goes, baby. Um, I fell asleep with ten minutes left, not because I was bored, but because it was so like mean, eleven in the peak. The peak of the I art fell dealer scene the with art all that tension, all, that tension. all the tension. You know, Will the she sell it? Will she not? When I watch movies, so what I did is when I woke up, I rewound it and watched that entire segment again. I didn't start at the beginning of the movie. Okay. And yeah. I think this is interesting because we talked a little bit about film and TV earlier. But like you let you we I did make the effort. I tried really hard to make sure I sat and watched this thing from beginning to end, which I'll admit has been a challenge for me. But I have to ask. Is there a little bit of TV in this movie? Like, could we watch this as four discrete episodes over a period of, I don't know, two nights? Like, so, I just wonder, uh, it is, it's a little... Could this be episode? Like, it's it is a, a little movie closer episodes, to TV but than could movie. it be episodes? And I guess that that well, makes me want to ask about your, like, personal feeling on uh, how you watch movies. Um, especially movies that aren't, like, necessarily that well made for home viewing. In my opinion, increasingly... 
with the proliferation of like us expecting to watch things at home, the value of a lot of the things that get released feel like you can second screen them or be distracted by them. Or, and so they, mm -hmm. therefore you need like the biggest possible fucking thing for you to watch or something that's an hour long. Like, I think I'm engaged in the attention war of trying to really focus on things that deserve my mm -hmm. attention at home. And I, I would have, by the way, I'm not advocating to watch this at home. I think these movies are much, much, I think all movies are much better seen on a big screen. Mm -hmm. But in absence of that, which is this case, I yeah. then struggle with the need to watch it in a 90 minute sitting. So uh, this is great. I mean, I think this, uh, we're getting a little into our personal philosophies as it comes to, um, to movie watching and TV yes. and like how these things relate to each other. You know, we're in this age of what is what people describe as cinematic television. I have some sort of like issues with that description of cinematic television because right. I think it comes down to sort of how do we define what is cinema? And I don't think it's just like the look of a movie. Um, so, Oh, for sure. I agree with you. Yeah. There. In terms of um, the viewing of this though, like they are discrete episodes, but the power of these episodes is that it's the cumulative, cumulative effect of seeing it all together and i think you don't get the cumulative effect of it all you could watch it all as like these episodes if you watched one episode each night like you'd be like oh this is cool oh another fun little adventure but you're not going to have that effect which is ultimately what every movie should sort of leave us with of like what is the thing of it feeling complete and completion doesn't come in each single episode the completion comes from seeing them become friends and seeing this moment in their friendship at the very end like you said where they are now like reunited again and so to me this could not be just episodes um even though they work as episodes i mean like i feel like eric romare would 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 have loved seinfeld maybe he did love seinfeld it was on while he was alive and could have been a great writer on it he could have been a great writer on it I think the key word that you just said that, that sort of shifted my opinion is the accumulation of details. This is a quote, I'm using this, putting this in a small movie. And mm -hmm. small movies, meaning movies, I, I, I think that that translates to like, this is a movie about character and about building understanding of who the people are. They're character studies. These movies are character studies. And so- But not character studies in like, what is often an overwrought sort of way. An like American independent study, like, cinema oh, character God, study model. Right. Fuck. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. I, agree, I agree with you there. Yeah. I agree with you there. They're character studies in the way that Friends is a character study. Like, honestly, these are just like, they're verite sitcoms in a way. A, a verite sitcoms is very good. Yeah, they're accumulations of information that build to a meaning that you as the audience get and leave you to think about. I was saying earlier that like Eric Romare films give me an art hangover, which is a very positive thing. Uh, the next morning, I feel like a little buzz and I'm usually like mm -hmm. a little tired I'm like, oh, I just had like an experience, you know, I felt mm -hmm. that way watching the film Nightmare Alley recently, which I, I had to watch in two sittings. And I like woke up the next morning and uh, I felt like, oof, the like, original or the no, uh, the, uh, the, the Bradley Cooper, Toro. the Guillermo del Toro one, which I think is an astonishingly fucking great movie in a lot of ways. I felt that every Sunday night watching the new Irma Vep series, I'd wake up the next or Tuesday morning, waking up from the Monday morning screening being like, ooh, art, art is a thing. Mm hmm. But so I do think that this film ultimately the the episodic label only becomes every 40 or 20 minutes we get a title card for a new segment of the film and we've decided to apply the word episodes to that which doesn't feel accurate because in a way they're a little more like Godardian interruptions right like mm -hmm. they interrupt and tell you what to focus on the next segment they're very sort of like Brechtian just yeah. things that point to the important thing like what are sets, you this is what you're yeah. observing in the next story line, it sets right? it sets the premise yeah it sets up the 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 central point or the, not even point uh, these aren't movies that are meant to make a point or uh but the central idea of each and they, segment, yeah, they know, whether it's the blue hour or like we're talking about the beggar the kleptomaniac and the uh, the grifter. Right. Or, uh, right. Um, so it allows you to sort of like, okay, now you mentally adjust and you apply these characters and you're kind of in intrigued. You're interested of like, oh, what is this? Like you lean right. in a little bit more like, oh, what's it going to be like when Renette has to encounter a rude French waiter? Perhaps it's a rude French waiter. Um, right. Well, yeah, it's a it, French waiter, it, it, so it's probably a it's rude an, French waiter. <laughs> it's, <laughs> to use it's the another... stereotype. <laughs> It's another way of using a technique that increases audience engagement. It's not a telegraphing thing. It's a thing that's like, here's the focus. 
Now let's see. Well, I would argue also that it is the antithesis of what television is, which is a title at the beginning of a part of a movie is a tool of compression. It tells mm -hmm. you like, let's focus yes. on this thing. And you know what TV wow. is almost never about? Compression. TV is always yeah. about expansion. And I think that like one of the things that makes TV feel less special to me, and look, and I think this can lead into our personal philosophy section. Mm -hmm. What makes TV in theory less appealing to me is that it is not compression, is expansion. It doesn't feel like it has a finite thing. Whereas when I watch a movie, I know it's going to end tonight. I know it's going to mm -hmm. end in an hour and 40 minutes. I know you it's get a complete it's experience. Satan Tango, it's going to end in six hours, right? But I know that it ends, right? The idea, mm -hmm. by the way, like Satan Tango is one thing when it was on Criterion. I was like, I can't watch it here because I'm going to pause it for 45. I have to see it in yeah, the movie theater, right. something I've done now three times. But like, I think the opposite of it is compression. Yeah. And so we want where when we watch a movie, even one with episodes, we're having a compressed experience, and that's how the film is delivered to us. Though Romare released the film at a short film festival initially, it premiered at a short film festival. He loved interesting short films. as a series of four. I shorts, think it though. no, I think it played as a whole. But he kind of cheated. He kind of cheated the system. I think he did, but that's fine. Good. For, I mean, but it's. I mean, at this point, what he's four hundred. All the other shorts filmmakers like, were pissed as fuck. Yeah, they like, were what like, the I fuck? Romare gets to come and just play four it's, it's shorts. It's that classic thing where it's like, yeah. wait a minute. This thing has three 10-minute films. And then those short films in 1987 were probably 30 to 40 minutes long, right? They've only they, compressed They were, they were the longer, past. yeah. yeah. And, and yeah. now they're kind of coming back again. Like, yeah, the, make, long, one the, the long short. One, one of the great things about uh, the lack of standardized lengths of things in TV now, which is a really good thing, is that you can make something of any length and, and you'll see yeah. if people want to watch Just it. Just make it the right length. But a lot of folks, like you said, compression versus expansion, a lot of people have problems compressing and so you get unnecessary glut so i have not seen That's why we have fascism this... too by the way <laughs> i mean i'm i'm a fascist for movies well this is interesting <laughs> cut the unnecessary glut here's the th i don't know if that's fascism here's the thing is that a fucked up quote that i'm going to be attributed to forever now i'm a fascist for movies. for movies is actually what that sounds Fuck, like man. but oh my god <laughs> but here's the thing that's interesting and i think leads into our conversation about the personal philosophies uh i like to watch movies how i watch them i don't I get there might be a distinction between TV and film and film is special, whatever, but I don't give a fuck because I just want people to encounter things like I, okay. My personal philosophy about this movie is that Renette is a pain in the ass and Mirabelle is right. Like 99.9% .9 of the time. I can't, I can't tolerate. And good. Look at, she's it's not a real person so i'm not actually mad about it right but she's like a you know a young naive person moving to a big city with ideals and that's like really really great but like her almost inability to change it all really frustrates but, me in the movie sure. and like but I, very a very real person you know oh, a, for very sure. real a very person real that's very me. real young person yeah and also just like I, I think of family members that one might have and definitely like younger folks for sure with the sort of like the the strong idealism with the very black and white view of yes. things she there's no understanding of a gray area and um what's what makes i think the expression of their different points of views um tolerable and interesting and like i think respectable on no matter which side you might agree with yes. more or less is that it's always tied to an inherently human value. You know, the human value of like, um, how do we fix this thing? And like, if right. you divorce it from like political implications, it's tied to like a very real and honest and not necessarily wrong feeling, but they're just two totally different points of views. But I think it's impossible to divorce it from the political surroundings of it and but I, the movie isn't doing it but it's it's hard for us i no, think the movie isn't doing the characters sorry i interrupted you i'm sorry go ahead i don't know if the movie's well like in terms of it tying to more like sort of like political well no i think the movie is allowing the, about it. the characters like renette is renette seems to think not understand that there are systematic problems when it comes to people begging on subway trains people you know uh, the the sort of like the fact that a woman takes money from her that uh that you know the, there there's no thought on her part of like these are larger problems than just an individual person's experience whereas i think mirabelle is able to look at the system a little more yeah, the system yeah, that's yeah, created yeah. these inequalities 
which right. obviously very time i mean literally timely to the, yeah. the day that we're recording this podcast right but yeah so there's a moment um so um the main episode the main section where they get this difference in philosophy is um how do we help people um, it starts off with, who do we give money to? Which is a very interesting question that gets brought up. Who do we give money to? Um, you know, at certain points, I'm sure, uh, well, actually, this, this is, I can't say I'm sure. Some of us will give to people we see on the streets. Some of us don't. Some of us have. Oh, and we all have specific views on it. But we maybe never verbalized it. But we have characters over here that are interrogating, like, well, how do you decide yeah. who you give to? Oh, do they look nice? Um, Which is do wild. They look like she, they... It's crazy that she says that. Yeah. Do they look nice? Or, but, but I think these are things that actually, like... Are true people think about these are true things and like we just hear it verbalized which is kind of like a crazy because like i found okay so just to um give you a real story after watching this movie i was i was talking about this with my wife we were in portland maine um and we were walking on the street and we were talking about this situation in the movie and i was like and it made you wonder like how do we decide like who do we give to or like how conscious is it or how conscious are we of our choices that we're making and um I saw someone on the street, like right at that moment in time, and I had opened my wallet, I had some cash, and I gave him $2. Then I saw another person, like uh, on the next block. So, um, so then I said, well, I gave the other person $2. I can't give this person $2. And then I gave that person $2. Um, and then I kept walking, and I saw another person, and then I had my last $2. And then I gave him my last $2 that I had. Um, and then after that, you had no dollars. I, just, I had no dollars, and therefore, I just, it's not like I didn't encounter other homeless folks. It just, like, it just stopped being my problem anymore at that point. And it was like a thing of just like, oh, well, it's like, yeah, what do I do? I'm not going to go to the ATM and just continue to do it. You're not able to help everybody out. And we all make these choices consciously I was or say, not consciously. You're being human. That's just being you're a being human, human with a consciousness existing but, but over how linear often do time. We, yeah. And how do we? How often do we think about those choices in this movie? You get to see the sort of interrogation of these choices and like that we don't even think about and what's conscious and what's not conscious and the way we live out our beliefs. Yeah, and I think that part of the problem is I've become one of those cynical people that like can't stand naivete a little bit, and I'll 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 cop to that. I'll cop to that. Um, I also think it's uh, to continue from our conversation on the aviator's wife, which by the way, I think is a much to me, uh, a much more multifaceted and complex meditation on identity than this movie is, which, well, this movie is great. Don't get me wrong. I think you're seeing things in it that like I need to reflect on. And you have watched it twice where I have watched yeah. it once, but the, and, the, yeah. the polar kind of opposites of these two is not as interesting to me as the many identities, for example, that Francois takes on over the course of the mm -hmm. aviator's wife. It is a far more ex existentially, challenging work by the way as a quick side note this is a digression i'm reading that eric romare biography right now which we'll link to and he was obsessed with uh, sartre he was obsessed with him he was like his entry into sort of thinking about existentialism which i just thought mm -hmm. was really interesting because i think his films are very existential yeah um, and existential in um in very human ways and philosophical in very human ways. He doesn't do the sort of philosophy that you see in movies. Let's say like, think back to every nineties postmodern existential indie where characters talk about philosophy. It feels so written. It feels so mm. like, here is my philosophical point. Well, now here's my philosophical point. And it's not organic. And this feels like human beings that are having a naturally natural discussion that actually reveals their philosophy. They're not talking about philosophy. They're having conversations. Well, it's ingrained that in the directing of the film. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. Romare knows how to bring out, bring about what he wants people to talk mm -hmm. about and what to say. Um, um, for sure. One, one, in, one interesting point about that is uh, in this in, in the interview that I'd read, he's uh, he's not taking any one side or the other, but he thinks the discussion is important and the conflict is important. So the conflict of these two debates or these two sides is the subject more so than us feeling like we should be on any one side or the other side or any side is right or wrong. Which to sound like a cranky old man, I think is something that's lost in art a little bit is the idea. Like, so in my real life, I'm very, very pro taking a side. And I think that my real life intruded into my experience of watching this mm -hmm. movie. Like we, we had a conversation to come back to what I was going to say before and forgot to, we had a conversation last time about how you find it. I can, I find it very easy to, to be annoyed by a character in a film to mm -hmm. like take, to take on 
what the effect they're having on the characters around them. I was very annoyed by Renette in this movie. Which she would be okay with because she says, we all judge people. Right. That's, that's a good yeah. point. Um, but in real life, like, my philosophy is like, no, take a side. Like, and it's, it's clear to me in real life, who, quote unquote, whose side I would be on, right? Like, I'm a little more rational. I'm a little more like, like, try to be systematic in my thinking. This show isn't about my personal philosophy. But I think the role of art uh, is to uh, challenge um, mm-hmm. us to think about not both sides, because I think that unfortunately the phrase "both sides" is yeah. is is a challenge in our in sure. our. Sure, but the, how do we live our lives? What is it saying about what are we the, what the are we, we what are we questioning in ourselves when we yeah. when we encounter a work of art? Yeah, um, and I think to wrap this up, if that's all right with you, mm-hmm. Romare's choice is to lean into his actors, to lean into his environments gives the film, and I hate this, I don't even want to say documentary feel, I think that word's abused, but I prefer actually yeah. unscripted. I feel as though Romare's sort of choice, even though the film is scripted, to lean into unscripted elements of real life. Yeah. Give It's not a, it's not a documentary that's like, and now I want to const- th- talk about this issue or this idea. Mm-hmm. It's more like, I want to observe, you know? Um, yeah, it's, it feels like, Verite. There's something. Like I guess that's the closest. Thing. Yeah, you know, I don't know if you've been watching Nate the Nathan Fielder's The Rehearsal on HBO. I haven't started. Oh, uh, it's phenomenal. But one of the things that makes it phenomenal is there was a great piece on IndieWire that linked back to films that feel as though they were inspired that it was inspired by, like Robert Greene's documentaries or uh, John Wilson's shorts or Abbas Kiarostami's films, right? And like these sort of films that exist at at the real tension point of real life and and nonfiction um and which is a Rom- i'd love to go ahead yeah, sorry, no i was gonna say romare is, a, is actually a great practitioner of the hybrid yeah. form yeah in a way that's always narrative though he yes. never never says this is a documentary he never says anything's a hybrid these are narrative they're movies narrative films done right. done with with um documentary not forms but um uh, influences process, process a little uh, bit of, yeah you know the scene where they speak to the farmer feels as though he was like, I'm going to have my actress here ask you some questions. Don't look at the camera. Yeah. And it's so and natural just, and real. But and it's, it's a real conversation. But it borders a little bit on like a BBC style documentary. Uh, not in a bad way. Not in a bad way. It's not like the aesthetics are not like pan, zoom, push in, voiceover. Yeah. But more just like, here's a here's a, a, a Verite style take on this. Yeah. The camera's uh, at a very... Um, usually a 50 millimeter or a little bit of a longer distance. Right. Um, so we feel a little bit of the distance between the camera. It's not close up in front of their faces. It's not a documentary style in like a, an aggressive way at all. Right. We don't feel the camera's presence ever. Um, there's a line in that scene. Liam, yes. Great place to where, end on. Cause you mentioned um, this before. Sorry. He Damn, says, you can't always be right. The farmer says, you can't always be right. They're having a discussion about the weather. Is it going to rain? No, it's not supposed to rain. Oh, maybe I should get my raincoat. Right. And then the farmer's laughing at their their hubris almost and like trying to predict and trying to plan and make sure they're right. And he says, you can't always be right. And I think that's just like an, an amazing lesson for like this movie period, like the situations they get themselves into. Renette sort of coming to these realizations of like moments when she can't be right. And Mirabelle as well. Both of them in, are in friendship, discover this, these moments that you can't always be right. And I think it's just like, wow, what a beautiful kind of thought, idea, lesson to sort of be left with, with this movie. And like, imagine if we all went through life remembering that. A hundred percent. And I think if we look at this from like a non-personal perspective, a, a, a quiet theme of this movie that I don't think is intentional at all, but I thought about a lot was like encroaching modernity. The idea that like the world is changing, that pretty soon, it's 1987, pretty soon you're going to be able to look up the weather on your phone and you're not going to be reliant on like the farmer telling you like, yeah, those are just these kinds of clouds and they don't indicate rain. Like we're going to like lose our connection to the natural world, which this movie Mm -hmm. is framed by this like beep, beep, boop, boop score that I think rules. But like there's an awareness of the tension between the natural world and and the the The, electronic encroaching world, the youth, the digital world. 
with this uh with the modernity with the the music it's so freaking good just like these very simple music cues and it's so genius liam because the title cards are very modern in design very like and modern for the 80s which saved by the bell french style baby save save by the bell french style and it makes me realize like more things should be dated it's good when things are dated because it gives you an honest record of what was modern at the time i 100 percent so you through the music you understand that was what was modern the title cards let you know what was modern and then what do you cut to the countryside so you've now immediately from the opening 10 seconds of this movie created a juxtaposition between modernity and the country and then right there in 10 seconds you've kind of set up the entire film and again to come back to our larger conversation about Romero as a filmmaker and his working methods uh you know encroaching modernity also meant smaller cameras better ability mm-hmm. to record you know this was this, shot on 16 shot on millimeter. 16 millimeter probably with better versions of the cameras that filmmakers like the Maisels brothers used to make salesmen 25 years before this um mm-hmm. you know there were and with the same camera that everyone if you went to film school in the, the 90s Bolex probably used or something like, like that. the bullets or like the like, like an resr2 right. or they were probably using the aton uh, camera since they were in France, but um, a version of a 16 millimeter camera that if you went to film school at a time where you were using that, yep. um, which now is becoming rarer and rarer, that's the same camera Romare used. He, it wasn't the most expensive, fancy thing. It was just the camera that you could get at your local university. Go make a movie right now. Yeah. This should be inspiration. It's to inspiring just to me. I'm just it, shooting stuff. Make shoot it with an whatever. Who gives yeah. a fuck? Make a movie. Yeah. Let's wrap it up there. Next time on the show, girlfriends and boyfriends, which will be the completion of our or summer boyfriends of- and girlfriends or my boyfriend's girlfriend. Is that a it's had, it's had a few titles? Wow, that'll be something to get into. Um, that's that'll and conclude our summer of Romare series that we've been piggybacking off of the wonderful Metrograph Theater in New York City. Metrograph, come on the show. Somebody at Metrograph, come on the show. Come talk to us. We'd love it. Uh, Follow me on Twitter, at Liam G. Billingham, uh, where I post a, a little bit about this podcast. Don't follow me on Instagram, because I post photos of my kids there. Kid. Soon to be kids. Ooh. You can... Oh, yeah. Um, have fun, man. Thanks, buddy. Um, you uh, can follow me at the Brown Sean S-H-A-U-N, on all social media platforms. I even just joined Be Real today, because I think it's important to stay up to date with what is modern. What and are the so kids you can doing? find me everywhere i'm not on snapchat and i don't really use tiktok but i have accounts on there but i'm active on instagram so the brown sean and um that's also my name on letterbox by the way the reason i was grabbing my phone is because i wanted to check my instagram name i mean my letterbox name which i'm starting trying to be better about doing i think i'm just liam billingham on uh yeah i don't think i have it yeah liam billingham on um on letterbox which i'm trying to update more of uh yeah, follow us there. Please uh, review the show. Subscribe to the show if you haven't. Uh, this has been great, Sean, as usual. Thanks, buddy. Cannot wait. Um, tomorrow I'm seeing Boyfriends and Girlfriends, and I'm seeing it with two of my lovely actor friends that I collaborate with a lot. We're all interested in Romare, and so I'm very excited for tomorrow's viewing experience um, for the film. Well, have fun. As I'm going to watch it on people that make movies together. I'm going to watch it on my couch and probably fall asleep watching it. So again, we're having different experiences. <laughs> I'm, uh, this was Rome America. You're such a, you're such a Mirabelle. I'm, I am. It's the best. I'm Liam and Bellingham. I, I'm a, I'm a, and I am a Renette. Renette. In. Sean Bye everybody. This was Rome Aircast. Adieu. 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 Sean, will you sing the beep beep boop? Wait, no, that's not it. Oh, man. Cut. All right, we're done. Thank you.
Thank you.